We'll turn in the word of, not the word of the catechism, turn to the catechism rather this evening first to Lord's Day 4. Lord's Day 4, I want to read question and answer 10 and question and answer 11. You'll find that on page 204 in the Book of Forms and Prayers and 873 on the Trinity Psalter Hymnal. This evening we're going to look at the cross as the place of propitiation. We'll uh, see what that word has to do with, but it has to do with the wrath of God that is kindled against human sin and rebellion. And I want to read the catechism questions and answers and dealing with that from Lord's Day 4. Question 10, will God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly angry with the sin we are born with, as well as our actual sins. God will punish them by a just judgment, both now and in eternity, having declared, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. But isn't God also merciful? God is certainly merciful. But he is also just. His justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. And then this evening, our scripture reading and the text for the sermon will be 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You'll find that on page 1,257 in the Pew Bible, 1,257, 1 Thessalonians 5, and uh, I want to read verses 1 through 11, but the text will be verses 9 to 10. Listen to the Word of God. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober." having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. 
I'm sure that some of you children, perhaps all of you children, know the story of Jacob and Esau. They were the twins who were born to Isaac and Rebekah. Esau was the firstborn, and so Esau was in line to receive the blessing of the firstborn, a special blessing from his father Isaac. But Jacob had been promised through his mother, or Rebekah had been promised, that the blessing of the firstborn would come not to Esau the firstborn, but it would come to Jacob the secondborn. And so one day, Esau was off hunting, and he comes home exhausted, dragging himself back home again, famished because of his arduous hunting. And it just so happened that Jacob was there making a pot of stew. Jacob wanted the firstborn's blessing. Esau really didn't give a rip about it at all. And so Jacob was able to trade a bowl of stew for the firstborn's blessing. And then sometimes later, sometime later, uh, Jacob pretended to be Esau, dressed himself up in skins, and then went to his father Isaac, who at that time was quite blind, and got the firstborn's blessing because Isaac thought that Jacob was Esau. And then Esau comes home and finds out that Jacob got the firstborn blessing, and he's furious. He hates his brother, and he vows that once his father Isaac is dead, Jacob is going to be dead as well because Esau is going to kill him. Well, Jacob does what any sensible person would do. He runs away to uh, his uncle Laban, And he was there for a number of years, marrying intern Leah and then Rachel. But things turned sour between Laban and Jacob, and Jacob thought that it was time to go home. But there was a problem in going home. There was Esau. Jacob had remembered his murderous threat so many years ago, and yet there was little that Jacob could do. He really had to go home, and so he goes on his way home with fear and trepidation. And then, as he is going home, his messengers who went ahead of him came back to him and say, we met your brother Jesus, and he is coming to you with 400 men with him. Well, if Jacob was fearful before, he is terrified now. And so he is going home scared to meet his brother Esau. But he does some quick thinking. He does what needs to be done so that his family is protected. He prays to the Lord to protect his family and his wealth. And then he has this plan to give a massive gift uh, to his brother Esau. And so he takes calves and bulls and donkeys and camels, and he puts them as a gift. And then he separates that great bunch of animals into smaller bunches with gaps in between so that this already massive present would be seem even bigger to Esau. And the Bible tells us what Jacob's motivation was. Why did he give this gift to Esau? It's for this reason. I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face perhaps he will accept me. You see, he knew that Esau was angry with him, and he thought that with this gift, he would pacify Esau, 
that he would calm his anger down so that he would then in turn welcome Jacob and that they could have fellowship together. That story of Jacob and Esau really illustrates the doctrine of propitiation, or it helps us understand that the cross is the place of propitiation, the place where the wrath of God is dealt with. We are in a similar situation to Jacob when you think about meeting God. I don't know how many of you think about meeting God. It is a infinitely more terrifying prospect than Jacob had in meeting his brother Esau. Yes, Jacob did rob Esau by trickery of the birthright, but we've robbed God of his glory. We've all sinned and fallen short of his glory. We've taken what is God's to be used for his praise and adoration, and we've twisted it and used it for our own self-aggrandizement. We have sinned against God in our Um, original sin by virtue of Adam's disobedience, and we've added to that sin daily by our disobedience and our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. And because our sin is against an infinitely holy and perfect God, our punishment is a punishment of eternal punishment of soul and body in this life and in hell. That's what the Scripture speaks about. It speaks about the wrath of God. And you can read the Scriptures and come up against that word everywhere. It's in our text this evening, for God did not destine us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. But it's all over the pages of Scripture. In fact, you can talk about the divine vengeance of God against human sin and rebellion. In, in so many places in the Scriptures, you can see it, that it is, as J.I. Packer said, it is legitimate to call the Bible the book of God's wrath. And interestingly, Packer goes on to say, there's no one in the Bible who speaks more about the wrath of God than our loving, gracious Savior, Jesus Christ. Wrath is a big thing in the Bible. It is all over the Scriptures. But we need to be careful when we think about wrath, because usually when we think about wrath, we think about humans who fly off the handle uncontrollably because something in their life irritates them or doesn't go the way they want it to go. You can think of the mechanic who can't get that uh, seized bolt or nut loose. How he can take his tools and slam them against uh, the, the vehicle that he's working on, hoping that somehow that will help, and if not, at least his anger is vented. Or you can think about the parent who yells at a child because a child has spilled some milk on the floor. And it's easy for us to think that's what wrath is, and then either project that back onto God so that we think improperly of Him, Or we think that there's no way God would be like that, and so we think that God doesn't have wrath at all. Well, that's not exactly true. The Bible does speak about the wrath of God. We sang it from Psalm 75. We read it in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9. But what is God's wrath? Well, we should not think of it as an uncontrolled fury. 
but we should think of it as his deliberate response to everything that crosses him or competes with him. Probably the passage in the Bible that has the most extensive treatment of the wrath of God is in the prophet Nahum. Nahum chapter 1, the verses 2 through 6. It speaks about how can we stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. And so it speaks about the terrifying wrath of God. But right at the headwater of this passage is this verse, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. Do you see what Nahum is saying? God has this jealousy for His own name, for His own glory. He will not share His glory with anyone else. He loves Himself supremely. So anything that tries to rob God of His glory or any worship of Him that is divided and doesn't give Him wholehearted affection and adoration, anything like that, God hates. He despises. And His response to that lack of giving Him the glory that He is due, His response to that is jealousy and wrath. And so we need to think of it that way. We need to be careful. It's not an uncontrolled fury. It is a deliberate response to anyone and anything that crosses him or competes with him in his devotion to his own glory. The second thing to understand is that God's wrath is always an administration of justice. So God doesn't punish needlessly or unfairly. His judgments are never over the top. He never punishes someone more than they deserve to be punished. You can see this in Romans 2 when, when the, the apostle speaks about the wrath of God, and he speaks about that day when the, the wrath of God will come out upon rebellious people, and he speaks about God's wrath as his righteous judgment. So that if you were to be sent into hell as a sinner without a Savior, all the holy ones would applaud the decision of God, and not one of them would call into question His integrity in any way. His justice is righteous. It is fair. It is just in every way. And then the third thing to notice is that God's wrath is always invited. It's not that God is a tyrant who just loves to unleash His anger willy-nilly here or there. No, He only exercises His wrath upon those who invite His wrath upon Himself, upon themselves. Listen to what it says in, in Romans 1, verse 18, "...for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth." 
It is only the ungodly and the unrighteous who experience the wrath of God. And they experience it because of their ungodliness and unrighteousness. Their hearts, Paul says in Romans 2 verse 5, their hearts are hard and impenitent. They are unrepenting. And because of their rebellion against God, their recalcitrance, their refusal to change, to submit before Him, to bend the knee, to acknowledge Him as Lord, because of their refusal to do that, they are actually storing up wrath on the day of judgment. I want to take you to one of the great glens or the great valleys of the Scottish Highlands. And you'll see them peppered throughout these big hydroelectric schemes so that there's this dam that is built across a valley. And then behind the dam, there's a reservoir. And all the streams and the rivers run into that reservoir. And that reservoir keeps the water. And then at the dam, there's a sluice gate that's opened whenever energy is needed so that the water runs out, turns some turbines, and produces hydroelectric Tower, power. Well, you need to think about that reservoir in light of human rebellion and sin, because this is what Paul is saying, is that God has this reservoir, and in that reservoir flow the streams of sin and the rivers of rebellion of all people. And the reservoir is filling up day after day, minute after minute, as people live in unrepentant rebellion against the Lord. And the water comes higher and higher and higher, and it's stored. And then Paul says that on the day of judgment, God will open the sluice gates of the dam, and the torrent of water will come down upon the sinner and destroy him and ruin him completely. That's what they will experience. They are storing up wrath for themselves. And then on the day of judgment, that wrath is going to come down upon them in fierce judgment and fury. It's a solemn thing. And it's no wonder that many, not only in the world, but also in the church, mock the idea of hell and of judgment and of the wrath of God. Liberal Christians think of God as only love, think that to speak of God's anger is, is to, uh, to think of Him as some pagan God, unworthy of His glorious revelation of Himself in the Scriptures. But the truth of the matter is, is that if you read the Word of God, which is the revelation of God to us, you can't but see that this God is a holy God, and in His holiness avenges sin and rebellion by pouring out on unbelievers his wrath and curse because of their sin. It's a solemn thing. And there is really no way of understanding it unless you understand the depths of your own depravity and uh, the perverseness of your own lives. But even knowing your own sin doesn't allow you to believe the truth of what God says about hell. You cannot really take in the solemnity of hell unless you believe that there is mercy, that there is a way of escape, that God who is holy and just and an avenging God is at the same time a God of love and kindness and tender compassion 
for all sinners who would turn to him in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the marvelous thing that we see here in 1 Thessalonians 5. Because though the Apostle Paul doesn't shrink back from speaking about God's wrath, he says that these Christians, these Thessalonian Christians, have not been destined for wrath, but instead have been destined to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you need to keep both parts of these sentences together. You can't orphan the one from the other. That is, the reason God has not destined us for salvation, sorry, the reason God has not destined us for wrath is precisely because He has destined us to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. That is, the reason we can escape the judgment of God, the wrath of God, is because our Lord Jesus Christ died for us. Or to put it in terms that are more theological, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is the place of propitiation. It is in the cross that the wrath of God is averted from us through the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ died for us, Paul says. And you need to understand the death of Christ as a substitutionary death. That is, He died in our place. In our place condemned He stood, sealed our pardon with His blood. And not only that He was a substitute, but that as the substitute, He had the full fury of the wrath of God against sin poured out upon Him. Christ died for us. That is, He died for us as a victim under the judgment of a holy God. And you can see this in a couple of ways. You can see it, first of all, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember how our Lord Jesus uh, takes His disciples with Him, 11, and He leaves eight disciples behind. And then He goes forward with the three disciples, Peter, James, and John. And then He goes forward alone. And I often think that this is Jesus entering into the the most holy presence of God. Again, if you turn the tabernacle on its edge, the, the 11 disciples or the eight disciples are in the outer courts. He takes the three disciples with him into the holy place, but he alone goes into the most holy place as our great high priest. And there the gospels writers tell us that Jesus collapsed to the ground and his soul was overwhelmed at the thought of death. Why? Lots of people die and have died, and some have gone bravely to their death, but our Lord Jesus goes to his death with this heavy burden and weight upon him. Well, we know why he did. Because he said, Abba, Father, if it is possible, let this cup be taken from me. It was the cup that our Lord Jesus was going to have to drink that so made him shudder at the thought of the cross. Just think about how that cup is described in Psalm 75. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. That's the cup that our Lord Jesus 
so badly wish to avoid, this cup of foaming wine, this cup of wine of the wrath of God that the wicked deserve. And he knew that on the cross, he is the one who was going to have to drink the cup, that the holy heavenly Father was going to press that cup to his lips and Jesus would have to drink it to its very dregs. That's what gave him such unst as he entered the Garden of Gethsemane, the sheer horror of going to the cross and under the judgment of a holy God. Jesus, as the substitute, went to the cross as the place of propitiation. And then think about him not on in Gethsemane, but on Calvary. Or as one theologian says, Calvary sounds like such a lovely place. Calvary. He says we should get used to calling it Golgotha more because it has its harsher tones. Calvary, Golgotha. Because it really was a harsh place for our Lord Jesus. Because there on the cross, after the three hours of darkness, where God had turned his face away and poured out on his Son the wrath and curse of God that sin deserved, our Lord Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Cursed is everyone who is hanging on that tree. Because there on the cross, our Lord opened up the sluice gate of the reservoir of human sin. All the streams of his people's sin, all the rivers of his people's rebellion had filled up that reservoir. And then on the cross, our Father opened the dam. And our Lord Jesus Christ was damned. He went to the cross as a sacrifice for sin. He went to the cross to bear the judgment and curse of a holy God. There was a Scottish theologian by the name of John Duncan. He was extremely gifted. He, uh, he was so good in the Hebrew language that they called him Rabbi Duncan, and he had a, a ministry to the Jews in Budapest. He was ac- a- actually quite absent-minded as well. A story is told of how on his wedding day his niece told him an hour before the wedding that he should probably get upstairs and get dressed. And the hour passed, and he still hadn't come down, and the cab was there to take him to the church, and he still didn't show up. So they went upstairs, and they saw his clothes neatly folded, and he was in bed. That's how absent-minded he was. But boy, did he have a grasp of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The story is told of him lecturing in his theology class at the seminary, and he was pondering together with the class the the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ, particularly as that was explained in Isaiah 53, how the Lord has placed on him the iniquity of us all. It It pleased the Lord to crush him, and by his wounds we have been healed, and so on and so forth. And he's walking back and forth in the class, and somewhat confused and and ponderous as he thinks through the, 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 the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he stops, and his hands fly up. He says, do you know what it is? Do you know what it is, this Jesus being forsaken by God? He says, it's damnation. 
lovingly taken. And then the student says, he went and sat down in the chair and his arms slumped to his sides. And he sat there for a while and kept repeating, damnation, lovingly taken. The student said that he said that with with half a sob and with half a laugh, damnation, lovingly taken. That's what the cross was all about. Our Lord Jesus took damnation, and he took it because he loved his people. And because our Lord Jesus loved his people so much and took their damnation upon himself, then God's vengeance is pacified. God's wrath has been averted. Christ is the one who stands between the sluice gate of your sin and rebellion and you, so that when God opens that reservoir that has stored up your wrath or your sins and rebellion for generations so that it's now full of the wrath, that instead of the water torrent cascading and crushing you, it comes upon our Lord Jesus Christ, and it cascades over him and crushes him. Christ stands between you and the sluice gate of God's wrath. And we ought not to think that Christ merely deflected the wrath, that somehow he was so macho and so mighty that it came against him, and he just stood there, and it deflected away from him, and therefore away from us as well. Not at all. Our Lord Jesus absorbed the wrath of God. He experienced God's wrath. It came upon him without any dilution. The Son was the Son of the Father, loved of the Father from all eternity, loved of the Father in his mission to come to earth. And yet the Father did not hold back at all. There were no half measures. There was no pity that somehow minimized the fury of God's wrath. No, the full weight of the wrath of God against sin, an eternity of judgment of body and soul in hell. That's what our Lord Jesus experienced in his infinite majesty on the cross. He bore the sins of his people and experienced the fullness of God's wrath so that if you hide behind the Lord Jesus Christ, there's not a drop of judgment left for you. There's no dampness that comes upon you that is some residue of God's curse. There's no mist of God's punishment that you still somehow experience and know. Not at all. It is finished, he cried, because he had fully taken in himself the whole wrath of God. He drank the cup to its bitter dregs. And the cup that he gives to you is not a cup of wrath, but the cup that he gives to you is a cup of salvation, not filled with foaming wine, but filled with sweet wine, with his precious blood that was shed for a complete and thorough remission of all our sins. 
Christ has taken upon himself the judgment and curse of a holy God. Christ was damned so that those who know Christ will obtain salvation. And all of this, my dear brothers and sisters, is because the God of wrath is a loving God. It's hard for us to comprehend it. We think that He must either be a loving God or He must be a wrathful God. But it's hard for us to understand that this God of wrath is at the same time a God of love. And, and I think that throughout the history of the Christian church, Christians have uh, thought ill of God. They have thought perhaps that He's this stern, austere figure who doesn't really love us but has to put up with us because his son died for our sins. And and somehow the son has to twist the father's arm so that he loves sinners. That is just so far from the truth. It is because God is loving. Yes, we were by nature objects of his wrath, but nevertheless he loved us. Herman Bavink says it so very well. He says, God was angry with us as sinners but he loved us as his creatures. And it is in love that the Father provided a way for us to escape the judgment of a holy God. Who do you think sent the only begotten Son into the world, if not God the Father? And why did he do so, if not because he so loved the world that he provided for us a way of redemption in our Lord Jesus Christ? It's the loving God who has sent His Son for our salvation. And then just think about what Paul says about these believers. God has not destined us for wrath. That is, in His eternal counsel before the foundation of the world, the reason you are not under the judgment of God if you are a Christian believer is because He didn't plan for you to be under the judgment of God. His design for you from before the foundation of the world was that you would obtain salvation, that you would know the joy and blessing of sins forgiven, of wrath diverted from you. It's all because of God's grace. It's not because of you. It's not because of anything you've done or anything you could do. No, all we can do is fill the reservoir with our sins and therefore fill up the fury of God's wrath. It's all because of the love of God in Jesus Christ, our Son, His Son. God gave His Son, and the Son loved us and gave Himself for us. And God from all eternity destined us to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, listen to this, we might live with Him. Isn't that just fascinating? The wrath of God means that you wouldn't want to live with Him, that you would run from Him just like Adam and Eve did in the garden, that you would be terrified to meet Him just like Jacob was terrified to meet Esau. But because of our Lord Jesus' death and because His death was a propitiation, a turning aside the wrath of God, Because his death was a propitiation, we long to live with this God, to embrace him as our dear Father, as our gracious Savior, as our unspeakably grand and glorious Redeemer. Now, what do you do with this? Two things in closing. The first is that you need to prepare to meet this God. 
And what are you doing to prepare to meet this God? You can, uh, you can prepare to meet Him by thinking well of yourself. <sighs> There's nothing really the matter with me. I've got a few minor issues, but who doesn't have minor issues? I'm sure God is okay with me just the way I am. I am, after all. As my Hindu Uber driver said to me on Friday, I am, after all, a good person. I'm kind to others. So you could think better of yourself than you ought to think and say, there's no way that God would ever judge me. Me? (laughs) Others? Maybe. Me? Of course not. Or you could distort who God is. You could think, uh, well, he's not really that bad. He's love after all. He wouldn't do that. He's gentle. He looks upon us like grandfathers look upon their grandchildren's antics. You know, smiles benignly. It's okay, he says. And you could think that there, that's the kind of God I have, so I don't need to worry about anything. It, it will be okay in the end. As I spoke with a Muslim on the plane last Monday, Monday going to Charlotte, North Carolina, that's their hope. Just do enough and hope, cross your fingers, that Allah will somehow be okay. Or you could do like Jacob did. Try to present gifts to the Lord. I don't know, perhaps uh, an obedient life. Read your Bible, go to church, give money to others, be kind to your neighbor, help the old lady cross the street. And just impress God, and not just impress Him, but, but overwhelm Him with all that you're doing for Him. Certainly, He couldn't turn you away if you did that, could, you? could He? Well, Esau might not have turned Jacob away, but you can be absolutely certain that God will turn you away if you are somehow attempting to impress Him by anything that you can give. He doesn't need your gifts. The cattle on a thousand hills belongs to Him. and He would have no need of anything that we could offer. And even if He did, He wouldn't tell you because He is the great and sovereign God after all. No, the only way the only way, the absolutely only way to prepare to meet this holy God of vengeance is to find yourself hiding behind our Lord Jesus Christ, behind his big shoulders, because he's the one who can absorb in himself all the wrath that I deserve so that I, standing on the right side of him, taste nothing, experience nothing at all except love and favor and blessing, unmitigated, unstoppable, relentless blessing in this life and then for all eternity. So that's the first thing. Prepare to meet your God and do so by hiding behind our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the second thing, is look forward to that day when Christ returns. I get this from 1 Thessalonians 1. Remember how Paul describes them. He says, uh, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. 
That is to say, these Thessalonians Christians, these Thessalonian Christians always had their eyes fixed on heaven. They had their ears peeled for the trumpet blast, for the voice of the archangel, their eyes open. When is this Christ coming back? Which Christ? Well, the Christ who is the Son of God. Why do you want to see him so much? Well, because he delivered us from the wrath to come. I can't wait to lay my hands upon him, to bow before him, to embrace him in love and adoration and praise, because he has done for me what no one else could ever do for me. He has delivered me from the wrath of God that I had coming to me because of my sin. He has taken what I deserve, my wrath, and has given me what I don't deserve, salvation. And so I long for that day when faith becomes sight, when the Lord Jesus comes in glory, and when we shall see him and forever be with the Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, we pray. Let's pray. Great are you, O God, our Father in heaven. It is such a mystery that we can call you our Father, the High and Holy One, that we can come into your presence without any fear, not because we've distorted who you are or embellished who we are, but simply because our Lord Jesus Christ died so that we might live with you. We pray that you would help us to understand the solemnity and seriousness of judgment and that you would take us to heights of ecstasy as we think about the sheer glory and wonder of what the Son of God did to save sinners. Oh, how we thank you that he was forsaken so that we might never be forsaken, that he was cursed so that we might receive the blessing, that he was thirsty so that we might never thirst but instead be led to streams and springs of living water, and that he died that we might have life, that he was condemned that we might be accepted. We pray, our gracious God, that you would write these things upon our hearts. And as we come to the Lord's Supper this coming Friday, we pray that we would come with joy, with amazement, astonishment, when we think of the unspeakable gift that Christ's body was given, his blood was shed, so that we could have fellowship with the High and Holy One, so that we could sit at the table of our Lord without fear and with great joy. Bless us, O merciful Father, we pray, and hear us for the sake of your beloved Son, our dear Savior. Amen.